Hey, I want to take you to a very famous passage in the Bible today, um, John chapter 316. You've seen this passage if you've been to a sporting event. Maybe when somebody was kicking for the extra point, there was a banner right behind the goal that said John 316. Uh, a couple folks have written that into the, uh, the uh, anti-glare uh, stuff they put under their eyes right there. Um, you've seen maybe John 3.16 etched there or at a basketball game. It's very, very, very famous. I wanted to set the tone for us today. But before we do that, um, let me tell you just a few things that are on my mind as I think about this, as we press in as a church, about what does God's heart for people look like in a world that is, I think, very broken, a world that certainly needs a Savior, not just some help, but an actual Savior. What's God's heart in the matter of it? I used to teach high school, many of you know that, and it wasn't unusual, remember this is a PG-13 presentation today, it wasn't that unusual as I'd be walking through the hallways among these 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, and I typically taught 11th grade, although occasionally 9th or 12th, I never taught 10th grade, don't know why, but uh, as I would walk through the hallways or as they'd sit in my class, not know I was listening, I would hear this phrase as some beautiful young lady would walk by, some young man would say something like this, man, I'd like a piece of that, I'd like a piece of that. It's something uh, that it wasn't only heard in school environments. I, when I was in high school myself and then in college, it wasn't unusual to hear some friend in the group say something very similar. And that's an interesting phrase to me because maybe even unknowingly that phrase is one of the most honest things I've ever heard somebody say when it comes to sex, sexuality, intimacy, and relationships in our modern world. I'd like a piece of that. Because what the young man was never saying was, I would like to embrace all that she is, her mind, her intellect, her soul, what is physically attractive about her and maybe those parts that aren't. When she has a good day, when she has a bad day, when she wears the clothes that gets me to look, and when she doesn't wear the clothes that gets me to look. He wasn't saying that when he said, I'd like a piece of that. What he was saying was, there's a segment of her that I would like to bring in and close to my life. Just a piece of that. They never knew how honest they were being, but man, that's an honest statement. And I think it's a bad statement, but it's still brutally honest. And yet that idea that we can somehow benefit from pieces of other people that we can get pleasure, derive enjoyment from pieces of other people is ingrained in our psyche, in our culture, in our broken, sinful realities. It's a part of the fallenness of humanity. It's ingrained in us. And yet God has a better way. God has a better way than just being attracted to the pieces of the person that stimulates us, draws us in. And before I get to the way that works out in relationships, let's talk about God's heart on the matter. And there are a lot of verses we could go to to talk about the fact that God sets a standard of love, connection, intimacy, sexuality that goes so far beyond, I would like a piece of that. There's a lot of places we can go in the Bible to discuss that, but I think John 3.16 
gets us going in the right direction. Here's what it says on the side screens, on your iPads or phones or in the good old leather-bound version you might have in your lap. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world. And that love of God that he had towards the world produced in God a certain set of actions. Out of that complete, total, full, as opposed to piecemealed love, God gave. God didn't receive. God gave. Partial love likes to be fed, likes to receive. In fact, in a healthy relationship, there is some give and take. There's nothing wrong with that. But the kind of love that God demonstrated for us in sending his one and only son to the world so that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life, that kind of love that flows from the very pure and complete character of God gives. And it runs counter, doesn't it, to the culture of this world. It runs counter, if I could be honest, to my own heart that says in my relationships far too often in my marriage I point to my wife Jill over here far too often but there she is too often the way I approach it is not a love that gives in fact I don't even think about it it's subconscious it's a love that desires it's a love that wants it's not all bad it's just incomplete it's a peace not the whole. Jill and I have been married for 25 years. Some of you may be tired about me reflecting on my personal life when I bring messages. I, I don't know, but it's very difficult for me to dig into a passage, a concept, a talking point like we're going to have today without running it through the filter of my own life. And we've been married 25 years, and I have to be honest with you, 20 of those years have been the best years of my life. And five, not so much. That's the nature of relationship, isn't it? It's not always great. We have this idea, I think, not because we've embraced God's idea of love, but because our culture, our intellectual tradition, flows through the Greeks and Romans. Philosophers discuss this as the Western intellectual tradition. It's just part of our psyche as a culture. Europe and America, maybe Australia, I suppose. We have this idea when it comes to love, and it conjures up images, maybe like ones we just had a few weeks ago, of Cupid in his diaper shooting arrows <laughs> into our hearts. The love tradition that flows through the Western intellectual mindset that is deposited here in America today and engendered in our culture, our songs... Our books, our movies, it's not the complete and total love that God has for us. And I wasn't insulated from that when I got married. I brought to my marriage a lot of hopes and dreams and ambitions. Many of them were good and pure. And my wife did the same. She's an incredible lady. But we were not and are not still completely made whole in Christ, the way we're going to be completely made whole, that day we stand face to face with him. What that means simply is, is sometimes our love doesn't look very loving. That's a problem for some people for a pastor to admit. 
Now, you might know it intellectually, but in reality, it works out in ugly ways. When her imperfect love, often that is demanding, not giving, meets my imperfect love that is often demanding and not giving, you can imagine somewhat of a, well, ternatic experience on occasion. (laughs) 20 of the 25 were great. Our first real challenge had to deal with something that's very common. Maybe you can relate to this. It was her family of origin was different than my family of origin, but we had never thought about that. And the ways they related early on and the ways we related in my family, this, they were very different. And so I came into our marriage hopeful, pure-hearted as best I knew how, and she did as well. And for the most part, because we were very similar, similar background, similar faith, for the most part, things were great until they weren't. And then when they weren't, she would somewhat retreat to her patterns that were demonstrated in her family, and I would retreat to the natural patterns demonstrated in my family, and we were doing anything but connecting in healthy and life-giving ways. Our love did not look like the love that God calls us to, love that gives. In those moments, it looked like love that demanded. Natural, understandable, not unique, but not helpful, not good. That's why God calls us to a complete love. Beyond the fact that there were some challenges early on stemming from our family of origin, for me there was some shame associated with the fact that my marriage wasn't perfect. I wasn't getting all that I wanted. I was getting pieces. And I had good old-fashioned Protestant shame. A little less significant than Catholic shame, but there it is nonetheless. And so you take the real challenges and you add some shame in it and it creates even more difficulty. Now we were committed to each other, so we're not going to throw in the towel. Although I'll never forget at our first major blow up that happened and was 10 times worse than it needed to be because for a year I incorrectly assumed that the way I loved my wife best was to never confront, never discuss, take all potential conflicts and just put them in here and hold them. And in that way I was just being safe and loving and giving until about the first anniversary and we had that first real argument because we've been avoiding all the small arguments all along, even just healthy discussions. And boom. And I remember laying in bed thinking, I think I'm stuck. I I think I'm a year into my marriage and I am stuck because I'm going to be a pastor. And they don't allow you to have major problems. They, whoever they are. They don't allow you to have major problems in marriage if you're a pastor. And the truth is at that point we didn't have major problems, but they certainly felt major to me at the time. And you can fast forward over the 25 years and we had a child incredible young lady now and that changed the dynamic about the time we had it figured out here she is and just the introduction of a third wheel with a developing personality and ideas the most difficult challenge that we ever faced believe it or not in our marriage relates to this church We had started this church uh, just uh, 11 or so years ago. We began planning. We're just over 10 years old as a church. And we had started this church, and it was crazy. On our worst 
or best, depending on your perspective, day. We thought that maybe a few months in, on Easter, several months after we began, we might be able to have about 200 people. We thought that would be the culmination of the most wild, God-honoring, faith-filled dream ever. And on our very first month, we leveled out somewhere over 300. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Except that if you will put in mind the picture of the duck swimming across the pond in the woods, isn't that a beautiful picture? Serene, awesome, cool, little ripples coming off the duck. That's what everybody thought this was like. But underneath the water, you know what it looks like? There's a little ducky going, (laughs) that was me. Oh, and my wife had a full-time demanding job. And by this time, we had four kids. I don't even know what to say about having four kids. And so schedule, difficulties, challenges, and there we are. And that tornadic go-around of both pure heart and pure heart, brokenness and brokenness, unmet expectations, unmet expectations coming together in a relative close proximity at 6559 North Windwood, Westchester, Ohio. We resolved that one at some point along the way. After lots of conversation, we began to see a counselor together. And we tried to work through the idea that the best I would ever bring to my marriage is brokenness. And the best Jill would ever be able to bring is brokenness. But we would also have something else we could bring that we weren't fully leveraging. And that is allowing God's heart for love and relationships to speak more loudly into our lives than they had up to that point. We didn't have pressures up to that point that really demanded us to drill down deep once for all on the root causes of, in my case, selfishness. Whatever problems we had faced, we could just with a little bit more effort plow through them, but not now. Not now with four kids and a growing church and two, two careers. And by this point, you know, 15 years of experience together. So did this ever happen with you if you're married? We would start to have a conversation, but we both knew where it was going to go. And long before that particular conversation ever went there, we ramped up as if it already had. You ever do that? And we found we were only having five or six of the same arguments over and over again. And the moment it would start, I knew what she was going to say, so I would speak to her as if she had already said it. That's a challenge. And you know, I know what's really interesting is, is I'm a pastor, and I know better. And it was really easy for me when I would sit down in my office with some of you and others and I would talk about your marriages and I would say, you got to stop this craziness. And it was accurate. It was honest. It was the best advice. I just wasn't able to fully bring that into my life. The next major hurdle we had, and I promise you, I'm not just here doing therapy with you. There is a point to this. The next major challenge we had was when we got into this building. My schedule ratcheted way up. We hit some walls and barriers, and honestly, maybe more than many of you know, we fell on some challenging times as a congregation. And so I jumped all the way into the deep end of the pool. Jill did too. And this was less about competing wills because we were in unity, and this was just more about the slow drain that happens over time when you're up against a hurdle that you can't just work harder and get through. They linger. It's the kind of thing that happens when maybe there's a prolonged illness in a relationship. And everybody's good-hearted on it. It just goes on 
and on and on. What do you do? When you want a good marriage, you want honest intimacy, you're willing to admit that you're at fault, they're willing to admit they're at fault, what do you do to get past it? I don't know the full answer to that, but in the next few minutes, I'd like to explore a handful of things, and I think it begins by understanding God's heart in love to begin with. And it's, in, it's embracing the idea that the love we have, when it's healthy and right, when it is whole, it flows from the very character of God. And that's why John 3.16, even though it's ultimately about a Savior come to the world, it's powerful in marriages because it sets the temperature appropriately for what love really should look like. For God so loved that he gave. He gave. When he gave, it opened up an incredible wide door of opportunity. How wide? Whosoever will. The Apostle Paul, who follows Jesus, tries to unpack what is the impact of Jesus in the world. So in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, don't run up debts. He's talking to Christians. Don't run up debts. Debt bad. Except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. He's talking to a church, not just couples. Don't keep records of debts. Except for the huge debt of love you owe each other. When you love others, you complete wholeness, not pieces, not parts. You complete what the law has been after all along. Whether you've been in church or not, maybe you remember the law. Perhaps you've heard of the Ten Commandments. A set of understandings, a set of rules to help people get along. The whole point of the law, Paul argued, was that it helped us get along and ultimately begin to love one another. Paul encourages the church in Rome to not keep stockpiles of debt, but instead remember how indebted we are to our Father who loved us. And to keep a list of how we're going to try to demonstrate love to each other. Now, unlike us, Paul and the Christians in Rome, most of whom were Jewish transplants, they had in their background a piece of literature that spoke loudly every time the word love came up. It was the Song of Songs. Maybe you heard it called the Song of Solomon. Right there. At the end of the poetic books in the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, right there at the end, there's this book that is unique in all of Old Testament literature. And when you first read it, unless you paid attention to poetry class in high school or college, it's hard to glean what's really going on. You get the idea there's a guy... Boyfriend, husband, girlfriend, wife. You get the idea they're always trying to run away to a garden together. And there are some people, you know, giving them some advice along the way. But when I was 14, it didn't make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me now. After several years of marriage. 
And this piece of literature was in the minds of these Jewish people who were hearing who were hearing Paul try to unpack what does the love of the Father look like and how does the love of the Father inform our love with one another. And so this word love was part of the theological and cultural dialogue. I want to take you to a handful of those passages and look at them for just a second. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7. Pay attention to the love word here. It says, you're beautiful from head to toe. My dear love, beautiful beyond compare, absolutely flawless. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love, beautiful beyond compare. You get the idea that this might be a romantic book, and it is. Song of Songs 8-7, floodwaters can't drown love. The idea there's this burning flame and the dam breaks, and here comes the flood, but it doesn't extinguish that flame. Torrents of rain cannot put it out. Love can't be bought. Love can't be sold. It is not to be found in the marketplace. It's something more eternal and permanent than those things that are bought and sold. And then Song of Songs 1, 2. Kiss me. Full on the mouth. Sloppy, wet kiss kind of stuff. Yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than your aromatic oils. Now, the Song of Songs was originally written in Hebrew, and it uses three words for love. In fact, we just used all three of them in English. They're all translated love, and I offer them to you as a way of understanding not the I want a piece of that kind of attraction, but the kind of love that God demonstrates to us when he gives his son a more complete, full, encompassing, it allows for the excitement and joy of the honeymoon and the wedding. It has space for when the kids come along. It's glue when family of origin stuff crops up. It brings you back to center when competing careers and goals pulls you aside. It helps you deal with lingering issues that doesn't seem, don't seem to ever just go away. It's the kind of love that helps you band together when the fiery darts from the outside are shooting in. It's a big love. It's a really big love that is exactly the opposite of what our culture says. That love somehow is working when I feel good about you and you feel good about me. I love you because when I'm with you, I'm happy. I love you because when I'm with you, I feel great. Before I commit to do a wedding, I have to tell the young couple always, look, I'm a Christian pastor, so it has to be a Christian wedding. I'm not doing all the other stuff, right? So it's Jesus' wedding. I get four or five minutes to say whatever I want to say. You don't get to script that. They're all like, okay, okay. And then I say, and you have to give real vows to each other. And they're like, well, of course. Not. No, 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 you'd be surprised. How many people just want to stand in front of each other and say, I really like you. You make me happy. Here's a ring. The kind of love that God calls us to in our marriages 
is a vow and a commitment we make to each other. And in the Hebrew culture, pulling from the Song of Songs, it speaks more loudly than it does in its English translation. Song of Songs 4-7. Guys, let's just back up three slides. Remember the one, you're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love? The word love there in English is the original Hebrew word, raya, raya. And it means close friend, someone to stand beside and enjoy life. It's familiarity that doesn't breed contempt, but breeds closeness. It's when people come together and they say, I'm committed to you. We have a friendship. Out of the crowd of people right there, there's a specialness about our connection, and I'm actually committed to you on some real level. It's not a binding contract. It's not full-on marriage, but it's a close friendship. And in that close friendship, a flame is kindled, a spark is ignited, something begins to grow. And so in the Song of Songs, in fact, all the way through our Old Testament, which is primarily written in Hebrew, like 98%, this ra'ah, love, comes through. Close friendship. It can happen not just between man and woman who are married. It's literally David, the king, Jonathan, the son of the former king, who are closely bound to one another. And they'll stand with each other, back-to-back, fighting the enemy. They're for each other. They're with each other. That was the first type of love that when the ancient Israelites read this book, the first level of love that they encountered. The second level of love that they encountered was in our second verse, in Psalm, Song of Solomon, verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 7. Floodwaters cannot drown love. Torrents of rain can't put it out. Love can't be bought. Love can't be sold. This is a beautiful sounding Hebrew word. Ahava. Ahava. And it's love of deep commitment and dedication of oneself to someone else. It goes beyond just the friendship connections and mutual enjoyment and sometimes shared expectation. This is the love that says, when you're ugly, I don't leave. I'm committed to you. The pretty parts, the I want a piece of that part, and the, oh, that, that comes with it? Okay, I guess I, I, guess I, I guess I get it all. It's when you're wonderful and when you're not. This is the kind of love that begins to run fully counter to the culture. It's a love of deep commitment. And so in the Song of Songs, which might be one of the most beautiful pieces of erotic and love poetry ever written, right there in your Bible, infused in all of it isn't just sexual excitement, isn't just what I get out of my marriage, what I get out of my relationship, but a deep connected commitment that says when it's good and when it's bad. So the two lovers in the story aren't able to connect all the time. And there's tension in the dialogue that they're having there in the book. The kind of tension that could separate a marriage, separate a relationship. And yet they keep plowing through. Why? 
because they have ahava, love. It's just a beautiful idea and concept that there's a whole line of cosmetic products called ahava. It's just Hebrew for love. Now you know. Not worth the extra money, all right? But love of committed, commitment, dedicating oneself to someone else. I'm with you. I'm for you even when it's difficult and hard. There are people in this room who are approaching 30 and 35 and 40 and 50 years of marriage. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not that it was all easy and it wasn't that you just had a best friend to do life with like Ra'ah. No, you had a commitment. You had an ahava. There's a third type of love expressed candidly and blatantly in Song of Solomon, and we read it in Song of Songs 1 and 2. It says, kiss me full on the mouth, for your love is better than wine and headier than your aromatic oils. And this one is the word dode. The English word love is from the Hebrew word dode. And this is physical or sexual love. And in the three, we see a progression. We see a a friendship that gets formed, and I get to know you. I get to know you on a deeper level than just we were at a party together. We shared liquids together. We had an experience at a concert together, or we were in the same class, no? We're having conversation, and I get to know you. And it even moves to the next level of deep commitment. I'm beginning to understand things about you that aren't always pleasant and pleasurable. But they don't repulse me from you. They actually draw me in because we are together. When you make me happy, when you don't. We're literally stuck together. So the love begins to take full form from friendship to deep commitment. And then in the Song of Songs, there's a third step, which is physical sexual connection. And the story as it unwinds seems to say that there's incredible health that can happen in a relationship, in a marriage, when a husband and a wife take time to build a friendship before the ceremony. And they get to know each other. And they look at each other maybe at an altar in front of a pastor or maybe in private and they say, I want to do this life with you. Knowing the good and the bad, I'm excited to embrace it all and do it with you. Do you remember those days when you were dating? You were just excited to do it with them. And at the time you thought, come thick or thin, hell or high water, you would be glad to be beside them doing it. You were approaching ahava in that. And then life happens, doesn't it? And all your wildest dreams of what it may or may not look like were shattered. But you made that commitment. The Bible says that when love grows from just friendship and attraction and mutuality to deep commitment, that it's in that safe place that love can take its final expression, which is that sexual intimacy. And when it happens kind of in those stages... We set ourselves up, and all the people whose lives, our lives intersect, we set all of them up for the best expression of what God's heart was with love anyway. Love that looks like friendship. Do you remember those passages where the Bible describes that Moses was a friend of God? 
And Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. That's the love of God for us. And those times that, as John writes, while we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. That's that love of commitment demonstrated from the heart of our Father to us. And then that deep, deep knowing that happens that sexual intimacy is supposed to be a representation of, it's Paul's words when he says, now we see darkly, but one day we will stand face to face with our Creator and we will know and we will be known. So even in the way God expresses Himself to us, there is this complete, total love, not piecemealed, but whole, complete and in it there is safety, in it there is joy, and great marriages have all three. We were created to experience all three. That's why Song of Songs, Song of Solomon's, he wrote another book, Ecclesiastes. That's why he writes in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, this idea. It's better to have a partner than to go at it alone. Share the work, share the wealth. And if anyone falls down, the other one helps. But if there's no one there to help, tough. Two in a bed warm each other alone. You shiver all night. By yourself, you're unprotected. With a friend, you can face the worst. There's something powerful when love gets its full expression. And there's something incredibly destructive when we have pieces of love. That's why my high school students who I cared deeply for and myself when I was in their age, when we said, I'd like a piece of that, we were revealing our hearts, but we weren't aware of the full damage that brings to us, to that girl, to our culture, to our lives. That's why some men who have the potential for all three, friendship, Commitment, even when it's ugly, and sexual expression in a thing called a marriage. Some of them will trade the potential for all three, maybe because they aren't fully mature, for a piece of one of those somewhere else. And it starts off like friendship, and it's so attractive because we invested here to some degree, but it didn't pay off. And now she, he, it's satisfying on some level. That's why I encourage you, be very careful. If you're married, ladies and men, how you interact with people of the opposite sex. That's why on our staff, we don't do full-on hugs unless we're married to that person. Like, you know, guy on guy, fine. Girl on girl, fine for staff. But, so like, just help me with my staff here. You know, don't come up and give the full body hug. It's not that it's wrong. It's just we're going to make sure that that marriage is protected because it's out of the healthy marriage that everything, that's why... On our staff, we have honest conversations about who's texting whom and what are they saying. And all right, that, that seems awful weird that she would communicate to you that way. Probably it has nothing to do with you, but there's some brokenness that happens in church. And we want you to protect your marriage, so you've got to be careful on the other thing. And you work with broken people too, don't you? And go to school with broken people. And you're broken yourself. And that's why this thing of a cord of three strands... Ra'ah, ahava, and dod that's supposed to be happening in marriage is worth protecting against things like who you're talking to and texting and spending time with and eating with. Because this thing allows you to have the full expression of love 
where the other thing will only at best give you a piece of that. And God's heart for you is that you would have all that he has. God's heart for your marriage is no matter where you are today, you would take steps to get all that he has. Friendship, commitment, and full sexual expression and intimacy. Friendship, deep commitment, and full sexual expression and intimacy. That's God's design for love and marriage. Friendship, deep commitment, and full sexual expression of love and intimacy. That's the three chords that God binds together, and when they're present in a marriage, it's very difficult to break it. But when there's only pieces, there's opportunity for sideways energy and discord. The conversation Jill and I have been having this week, as we drill down even deeper, is what is our friendship looking like? What does our commitment to one another to honor and love each other look like? And what does our intimacy look like? And those conversations almost always produce healthier, better, forward momentum. And when we have gone through seasons of life when it was difficult, and we weren't talking about that, and we weren't aware of that, and we were only interested in a piece of that, it almost always made the conflict more difficult. So the ancient book in your Bible called Proverbs, the book of wisdom, says this in Proverbs 3.3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Wear them on the tablets of your heart. And that passage is trying to get us to understand that a deep embracing of head and heart around a full expression of love in marriage It's a game changer. It makes a huge difference. I've given you three ways to do a quick evaluation of your marriage, whether you do it or not. The first one was, ra'ah. how's the friendship in your marriage going? About to get married. How's the friendship level? She talks, you actually listen with interest. He talks, you really want to hear what he has to say. You actually have laughter and joy together. In marriage, when's the last time you got together for play and enjoyment? Survey after survey shows that men, believe it or not, who've been married a few years would just as soon have their bride join them in a fun, enjoyable activity that is non-sexual than to join them in their bedroom. Because they like to laugh together. Enjoy what he enjoys. Enjoy what, How's the friendship going? Category one. Category two. What does it look like when it's not so pretty between the two of you? When it's pressures of family origin stuff? Kids? Competing careers and agendas? Or just the long drain of a problem that doesn't go away? Category two. What is the quality of your love when it comes to commitment, especially when things aren't always pretty? Friendship, commitment, and for those of you that are married, what's the quality of your sexual and intimate connection, both that, that is physical and that that goes beyond just physical, where you're truly getting to know one another on a deep level and you're making that time for each other? I think, I think, I think you could take those three words, ra'ah, ahava, and dod, 
friendship, commitment, and sexual expression and intimacy. And I think you'd go home and have a meaningful conversation this week that may actually propel you closer to God's heart. And you could give up living with pieces of what God wants and maybe begin to embrace the whole. That's my prayer for you anyway. That's what I'm praying for me. That's why Jill and I, after 25 years, and 20 of them were incredible and five were hard, we're looking forward to the next 25. Because we want all that God has for us. All that he has, not a piece of it. With that said, why don't you grab out your Connect card? We'll take out a few steps together as a congregation. As you're doing that, let me put something on your, on your mind. Um, beginning about three months ago up until last week as we've dived more deeply into relationships in God's heart, a number of things have surfaced in this congregation. And then last week I asked as a next step, if you want me to pray for your marriage, check that. And so all week long I've been praying over those things. And a lot of things have surfaced, more detail than I need to give you, but when God grows churches, he grows marriages. And one of the first hurdles that churches that want to grow have to press through is individuals in the church have to commit to God's way of doing marriage or the whole thing falls apart. And so I just want you to know that your staff, your pastor are praying for you. We want you to have all that God wants for you in your marriage. We think your kids are worth it. We think you're worth it. We think your spouse is worth it. We think that the work that God wants to do in this community is worth you pressing in, not to just pieces, but to all that God wants for you. So next step A says this, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. If you aren't yet in a relationship with him, go ahead and check that box. And let's pray about that in just a moment and look up to God. You use your words, borrow mine and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I bring you all of my brokenness. I receive all of your healing. I want you to lead my life from this day forward. Our next step B, choose to get baptized. We have a big baptism celebration coming up here on Easter. Check the box. We'll tell you all about it. You're going to love it. It's going to rock this place. It's going to be fun. But most of all, we're going to celebrate what Jesus has done when he brought full love to someone and washed them from their sins and set them on a new path. Here's next step C. I'm just like drilling in, all right? As a response to God's total love for me, I'm going to abstain from any extramarital sex or porn until Easter. So like if you're struggling, why don't you just make that, you know, less than 40 days now commitment. If I'm here doing this or I'm here doing this, I'm going to stop. Some of you said I could stop anytime. See if you can. Less than 40 days. And make room for God to speak beyond the sin that you're activating in right now. Here's next step D. As a response to God's total love for me, I'm going to let my spouse pick which of the one-third of the Hebrew words for love I'm going to bring more of into my marriage until Easter. So I'm going to go home. On my way home, I'm saying to my wife, Ra'ah, Ahava, or Dod? I'm praying she picks Dod, but she won't. <laughs> Ra'ah? Or ahava, friendship or commitment? Which do you want more of? And I'm going to try to bring that. And then she's going to look at me and say, which one? And I'll leave that to your imagination. Next step, E. Who would say with me, I've been hurt with love? Pray with me for God to heal my heart and root out the bitterness. 
That'll keep you from experiencing all, and you'll be stuck with pieces. So let's just deal with that in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've loved us completely, and you set a model for us. And we'll never do it perfectly, but we press in today. I lift up those that are declaring, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. Wash me clean. Lead my life. God, I pray for those that are struggling outside of your bounds, that today there would be a commitment that by your spirit, not only in their own strength, but by the power of the gospel, they would put off. And they'd make room for you to work beyond the sin of their lives. God, I pray for marriages today. Do your healing and restoring work. We give it all to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.